0: It's Shark Week on the Biz Women Rock podcast. These are the Women of Shark Tank, episode 80. What's up ladies, welcome to the Biz Women Rock podcast. I'm so excited because today is the first interview that's going to kick off Shark Week here on the Biz Women Rock podcast. All week long, Monday through Friday, we are interviewing women who have been featured on Shark Tank. Now this is not only going in depth about their whole Shark Tank experience, but it is all about their business journeys and you're gonna learn so much. And I would love for you to participate in the entire Biz Women Rock Shark Tank Ladies During Shark Week campaign. And all you have to do to find out more information about that is go to bizwomenrock.com. It includes beautiful shark graphics, selfies, and social media. And I would love for you to be a part of it, okay? To kick things off this week, I'm happy to welcome Jessica Tanuda, who's one of the co-founders of a company called Packback. Now, Packback, which is kind of hard to say three times in a row... Their focus is completely changing the way that student textbooks are done. If you remember your college days, the way that you got your textbook, your very expensive textbook, was your professor told you exactly what textbooks you needed to have. You went down to the university uh, bookshop and you bought your incredibly expensive textbook, and probably very rarely actually used it. What Jessica and her team are doing is completely shifting the industry on how students are actually purchasing that textbook knowledge and how the publishers are being able to deliver that knowledge. So instead of having to purchase the entire book, they give you the option to actually rent the particular chapters that you need for $5. It's an on-demand model. It's like Redbox meets student textbook industry it's really fascinating so she goes into it with us about how they built out this company then they got onto shark tank and mark cuban gave them a deal and it's an incredible story of exactly what happened what happened behind the scenes afterwards and how they've built out because of that so get ready to swim with the sharks and let's go (music) jessica thank you so much for being on the show with me today hi katie thanks so much for having me all right so on top of the fact that you are full of energy (laughs) we i'm so excited for this conversation today for many many reasons and i just want to go jump right in and dig into some of your past that will help us truly understand this journey that you've been on this whole time so can you tell us a little bit about what life looked like for you before you started your very own business
1: so my very first business i actually founded when i was a junior in high school so i can say my life back then was obviously very much what other students in high school were doing, and I can honestly say that starting that business was kind of kind of an accident. Actually, it was born out of a project that I did just for fun. I actually made a pair of shoes that I hand painted for a friend of mine and gave it as a gift. And they received such an amazing kind of response from our friends and family, and even other people that he met just on the street. That I realized that if I were to actually start to do that for other customers and other clients and start to package it up as a brand that that could really be a way that I could also make money for something that I really love doing. So while that was way back in junior year of high school, and I did it throughout the first couple of years of college just as a side project for me and just as a, a way to continually be both kind of running my own business and also exercising that kind of creativity that even though I was in art school at the time, didn't really feel like I had a chance to kind of get out all of those ideas. You know, I was able to continue doing that throughout the first couple of years, and even though it was a, a business that I ran as a, as a obviously a young kid in school, I really feel like it was kind of the spark that made me realize that going down an entrepreneurial path is a way that you can really start to create a career around something that you really enjoy doing and really love and not have to actually see work as work in those kind of in the, in the big W sense.
0: So. And how old were you when you first started this? So I think I was about 16, maybe. So it was the middle of junior year of high school. So. Wow. So what happened in that transition that you had built up this business and got into college? We're still doing this business. What happened that made you transition from doing that company into packpack
1: yeah, from the first business, it was called AIM Flat Designs, is the shoe company that I worked on. I actually did that on the side while I was going to class at Illinois State University. And in my freshman year of college, when I was going in as a design student, I had already kind of had this spark ignited in me for business. And along with a few other of our friends, decided to found a chapter of the new business community on, on campus. So it was a fraternity national, but it didn't have a chapter at our school. It was about 10 of us at the time. We worked together to form a charter for a new chapter of this fraternity at our school. And what... I honestly kind of root that as one of the most important things that we did in school because as freshmen, we were able to make this really strong network and this really strong organization that we actually still pull people out of that organization now for Packback, and that's kind of where the founders of Packback met, decided that they were able to work together as a team, and then decided to go on and do the business line competition that ended up being kind of a spark for our company. And then from there on, having those really strong, supportive business line of people around you while you're growing was kind of the key for us so
0: how did you guys even get the idea of pack back like what sparked that idea in the first place
1: i don't know if it was this way for you at your school but for us at illinois state we had to take a lot of gen ed classes that in our freshman sophomore year we were required to buy textbooks for them but honestly the professors for those classes actually pulled from a ton of other additional resources like YouTube or articles from some journals online or even, you know, even books or articles that they've written themselves. But very often our books were used as a supplementary resource as opposed to the core piece of the class. And although we were required to buy the books, we never really had a very reliable guess for how much we actually use those books in class. It was a lot of money being spent up front in the first couple of weeks of class to get our required books. But then we'd find out by the end of the semester that those books were used once twice and maybe three times and honestly that wasn't because we were bad students by any means it's just that our resources were being pulled from other places so we used our textbooks as much as they were actually called to be used in class we read them outside of even the required assignments but they just really weren't delivering the value that $300 used textbook in our mind should have delivered so we thought about actually breaking it down to kind of suit the way that we study which was to have the books actually be available on an on-demand basis and have them actually be e-textbooks instead of physical textbooks so that we were able to deliver books to your laptop or to your tablet at the moment that you really need them just for that night of studying. At that time, we really didn't realize how difficult that dream was going to be to achieve, but that was kind of the spark of it. So we just wished that there was a solution out there that worked for the way that we studied. And up until that point, there really wasn't. What we found out was there were a lot of challenges that were in the in the market that prevented companies from doing this, but we've come a long way since then. But that was the spark of it.
0: So we're going to walk through a lot of your process of how you really started the company and have grown it. But to get us started, walk us through what the business model is of your company. How are you guys generating revenue and what are the pockets there?
1: So, kind of the big hurdle, and it's it's both an enormous positive and a challenge for us, is that we partner directly with the publishers, and instead of having to purchase the licenses to the content upfront, we actually partner with them on a long-term relationship in a revenue-sharing agreement. So, every time a e-textbook is rented through Packback, we are on a standard agency revenue-sharing model where the publisher takes 70% and Packback takes 30%. So. That's the way that we're generating revenue through our core $5 rental strategy. But in addition to that, we have a few other products that I'm happy to talk about as well that we've actually added in to continue to help students in the meantime while we're working on growing our library of $5 digital rentals that actually kind of both suit their needs for when they're purchasing their books at the beginning of the semester through comparison tools of trying to find the lowest prices of used books or new books or e-textbooks online. So through the top retailers, we're helping them actually aggregate those prices. And then at the end of the semester, when they're ready to get rid of their books, we actually help them find the highest buyback prices on their books and create shipping labels for them to sell them right back to the retailer. So kind of trying to create an end-to-end solution for a student. And that's the way that we're kind of putting any new product that we're developing through our filter of if it really will fit into a student's existing study habits, and then also these ones are really going to benefit them and help them long-term to their four years of school. So on those other two products I recently added, that's the standard affiliate model. So it's a, it's a percentage of the sale through the affiliate. So It's not charged to the students, it's charged to the retail that we're helping to drive that business to. So uh, two kind of other ways that we're generating revenue in the meantime while we're working on developing these partner relationships with our publishers.
0: Wow, and both of those are really robust business models in and of themselves. So you guys are really busy For sure right now. Sure, <laughs> there are companies
1: that that do that as as their entire business. So it's certainly it's it's definitely an interesting model that we've gotten into. But we we actually are very excited about the new tools that we've added because it really does help us hedge that risk that we're, we had faced initially of being entirely in the hands of waiting for the publishers to make that first partnership with us. We were able to put ourselves out in front of out in front of the horse instead of having the cart behind it. So right. kind of just helping us to make sure that we're able to continue gaining traction and continue moving forward and driving values for students while we're still growing at library.
0: This is like the aggregate model. Like you guys are being like the kayak of student books. And did that exist before? Does that exist now other than you guys? There are a few other aggregators, but that's an interesting kind of, puzzle for us is that
1: we believe that the $5 rentals are not always the best solution for students. We think they're the best solution for many students in many classes, but we want to make sure that we're always trying to provide value for every student. So if the $5 rental is the best solution for them, we'd love to always have that book in inventory for them to purchase or rent. But for the students that do need to use their book every day or or, are in a class where it's called for, they want to actually keep it on their shelf wanna make sure that we're offering value to them as well. Uh, take it
0: yeah. uh, take us into kind of the beginning and what was happening at the beginning that you guys had to do in order to really launch and like start this whole process.
1: So initially it was Casey and Mike. So Casey Vanden and Mike Shannon are my other two co founders in addition to our fourth co-founder who's actually working at another job and helping us out uh, part-time right now. His name is Nick Courier. So Nick, Casey, and Mike actually ultimately decided, decided to compete in Illinois State's business plan competition at the same time that I also decided to compete in IAC's business plan competition with opposing plans. So we were actually competitors against each other, and I competed with an expansion plan for my initial business, Inkblot Design. So we actually competed against each other, and Casey and Mike took first place with their business plan, and I unfortunately took second place, so we, that's still one of those things that we just can't get over, but <laughs> uh, right after the competition, at, and we actually were, were privileged enough to have some really fantastic people from Chicago who are super prominent and super helpful to us now in the ad tech space in Chicago, we're actually on the panel and we're judging us. And some of them have actually become our formal advisors, some of them have become our investors. But we had a really kind of a lucky chance opportunity to have some really fantastic judges who were able to give us our start and give us some initial advice. And one of the things that was said to the Packback Boys when they first started the company was that it's a great idea. I wish it existed when I was a college student. But you are going to face enormous challenges trying to partner with these large companies to get their content on a licensed basis as opposed to actually having to to purchase the content. So we certainly had from the very beginning a sense of how difficult it was going to be, but I don't think we really appreciated how challenging it was going to be, not just to get the contact with the publishers, but also get all of the right pieces in place to have a deal actually get pushed through. So kind of our, our first push once so I, I joined the Packback team about maybe four weeks after the initial business funnel and we really decided we wanted to move forward with it. So I am a graphic designer by trade, and our other three co-founders were from the business field. So I joined up with them. We actually created some initial interface designs for what Packbackbooks.com would look like. And we wanted to make sure that we were kind of putting an emphasis on showing that we would be appreciating and treating the publisher's content with respect and showing that it would be, Handled in a very professional way that it would have a positive impact on their brand as opposed to any kind of risk that I know that initially they've been concerned about. So we created these initial interface designs for what pat.books.com would look like. And we actually used those in some of our first emails and pitches to publishers. But it was obviously difficult to get kind of the, the initial traction. So at that point, we were just an idea. We didn't have funding. We were still, we were four college students in our junior year of college at Illinois State. So we kind of had. All the odds against us, but one afternoon we actually made a, a cold call to Brian Kibbe, who is the CEO of Higher Education at McGraw Hill, which is one of kind of the, the big four the core publishers that handle the majority of the industry's content. So we cold called Brian Kibbe, and surprisingly by some miracle, he actually picked up, and he was intrigued that a student was calling him in their junior year of college talking about a revolutionary new model for textbooks that at that point I mean, it just didn't exist, it was just concept at that point. But he humored us and he said, give us your 15 second elevator pitch. So Casey was on the phone at the time when we were all listening around him with bated breath and Casey gave the 15 second pitch of what Pat Beck is. So Brian actually said that he was not only impressed, but impressed enough that he wanted to come down to ISU for three days. He took three days off work in the Broad Hill, came down and actually stayed with us at ISU spent the next three days talking to us about the model, meeting our business fraternity from which Beck had been born, and then actually talking to us about what a pilot might look like. And, and very early on, he had showed that support. It still took us quite some time after that initial meeting, but after that initial meeting with Brian Covey, we realized that it was possible to get that traction. We just had to approach each sale very carefully and see each publisher as an individual goal, each next milestone as an individual goal, because we had to break down this, this gigantic vision into manageable steps. So that really was kind of the, the first moment for us when we got the traction from a publisher. And from then on, actually, McGraw Hill was the first company to partner with us for a pilot. It took us about eight months to kind of get everything up and running, get our full course list for the books that we'd be pulling from McGraw Hill onto the platform, and get our, and then get our site launched. But they were one of the first ones that partnered with us, and we are eternally grateful to them for what they've, what they've done for us.
0: So once you guys got McGraw-Hill on board and got everything prepped to really build that out, what happened from there? That
1: was actually still our junior year of college. So after we got McGraw-Hill, that first contact with Brian Kibbe, we spent the next year coming up. I hate to admit it, but we actually would skip Thursday and Friday classes and we we do all of our homework remotely. We'd come up to Chicago from Bloomington, which is about a two-hour drive, every Thursday and come into 1871, which is the Chicago startup incubator and startup hub that's in the merchandise mart. And it's run now currently by Howard Tillman, who's one of our board members and investors. So we would come up to 1871 just trying to grab even a 10 or 15-minute meeting with any of the advisors and investors that work with anyone just to try to get the people not only supporting past that but also giving us their advice on how to start a company because we were so young at the time we we were still young, we still learned so much from our advisors but spending those two days a week up here in Chicago was honestly the most important thing we could have done for the company because as we found not only from our junior year meeting Brian Kibby and the traction that that was able to provide for us but every week that we would come up to Chicago to meet with people around the Chicago tech community, we have really realized that the most critical part of building a business and being able to make something that's kind of such a social pipe dream like what PacBack is, the reality is the people that you actually work with and people you meet because without the advisors and investors that we have gained, I don't think we would have been able to do it because there have just been so many logistical challenges to approaching such a, a big vision like this. And they've been able to help us, break it down into manageable pieces and use their own entrepreneurial journeys and stories to help advise us on what we should do in similar situations. And one of our advisors actually is Mark Acker from Redbox, who's a former SAP at Redbox. So there's definitely some overlap between the models there. And he's been oh, yeah. able to so much value in talking about kind of the initial challenges that they faced and the scrappy things that they had to do to be able to make Redbox the reality.
0: Yeah, I mean, this whole time I'm sitting here thinking in my head like, oh, this is like the Redbox for college textbooks. <laughs> Yeah,
1: the the $5 rental part has been described as the red box for textbooks and the comparison part has been described as a kayak. So it's like kayak, red box, mashup. But there's so much value that you can get out of talking to people that have been through similar challenges like this. And we could not be more grateful to people that have helped us from junior in college all the way up until now, just because being that young and being honestly still inexperienced at that time, a lot of people were taking a risk on us. And I think the kind of... Which a quick piece of advice as you know. I'm going through that part of the story is that it's important to remember that people aren't just investing in your idea. They're really investing in the people. So it's really about building those relationships and not just always approaching you know, people to ask, either ask for money, ask for help, ask for advice. It's really about trying to foster you know true long-term relationships with people. So you know, we've been lucky to have been able to, to build those kind of relationships early on that have been able to benefit all the way through now, where packback is and hopefully we're kind of providing value back to their companies as well
0: well and i want to use that to bridge into talking about one of your probably most famous investors, which is Mark Cuban from Shark Tank. So you guys went on Shark Tank and proposed your idea and you got a deal. And so I want to dig into a little bit about that entire experience. So can you yeah, can you share a little bit about maybe why you guys decided to go there and what that process was like to even apply?
1: So we actually by chance, one of our other fraternity brothers, his sister was actually a recruiting agent for Shark Tank. So We were lucky enough to have that initial contact from that point on. We were encouraged not only by our fraternity, but by our current advisors at the time that it would be not only an amazing experience to go on there and pitch our idea on a national stage like that, and it would also be an amazing opportunity to partner with such an incredible investor like Mark Cuban. But on top of that, it's it's a show that's watched by students all across the country, and it's an amazing way to get our vision out there in a way that students are able to access it, see it. and. Now, honestly, to, to break it down into the kind of have that cool factor around Pathback that not only talks about the fact that we believe the textbooks should be more affordable or we believe that they should be bought this way, but also see Pathback as a brand that they, they want to be a part of and they want to support. So that's kind of one of the, the biggest things that we ended up gaining out of it. But we had initially done the application process through our friends. We just submitted a video and some initial descriptions of what, what our business was, a shot to our website, and from there we were able to be contacted by the Shark Tank recruiters directly. So not just our friend's sister, but the other, kind of the next level up of recruiters that were kind of the decision makers on whether or not they'd actually bring us out to L.A. to do a, a video to see if they wanted to, to actually bring us onto the show. So there, one of the interesting things about Shark Tank, and I'm sure a lot of other sh- reality shows like that, is that even companies that make it all the way to the point of filming don't always make it on TV. So we were all the way back in September, actually, out in L.A. for the filming. And then we didn't know that we were going to air until all the way in March. So I think we found oh, out on wow. March, then our show aired on March 21st. So we had a kind of a three-week gap between when we first found out when, and when the show aired. That I'm happy to tell you all about that, but those three weeks were a crazy design sprint, crazy development sprint so much work to be done to prepare for that kind of national exposure and it was actually right at the time that we had added our two new products the comparison engine and the cell tool into the site so we had to get everything up and running in a way that people would understand what the new value proposition was and understand how to move through the site and not to mention trying to hopefully not have the site crash a lot of traffic on it but there's a lot of stuff that we did in those just those short three weeks to get prepared but back in September when we uh, went out to LA and filmed that was actually right when we had just launched the pilot at ISU and I think at the time that Casey and Mike went behind the camera we had actually had about $50 in sales which I don't know if you watch Shark Tank frequently but usually the investors are not impressed by anything less than you know hundred thousand dollars in sales right I mean, fifty dollars is not usually an impressive number for them but they,
0: they want like proof of concept first yeah so
1: we, we were really at that stage which is is incredible that we were even not only able to air but that Mark Cuban was willing to take a chance on us based on the concept and based on the relationships that he formed with us so lucky that the $50 didn't turn them off but I think they saw potential not just in the concept for the student facing side of the business but the fact that it really was a model that would eventually work for the entire industry publisher included
0: what was the most challenging question that that your because your two partners are the ones who went on the show what were the most challenging questions that they got that really kind of stumbled you
1: one of the ones that obviously is a, a difficult question to answer and also something that we're, we're still facing, we talked about it a little bit, but when Kevin really asked us about how we were planning on getting publishers on board because as, uh, as he mentioned on there, he had worked in the publishing industry in the past and he's faced the challenges of working with larger companies like that. So I think Casey and Mike handled it really well talking about the publishing relationship that we had already built and how we plan to approach that. But it was certainly a stumbling block because our success really at the time, and it still is very dependent on those relationships that we're building with publishers, but I think one of the things that we've kind of done to, to hedge that is add these new products in there, and we had ideas in our roadmap to do that. So I think even some stuff that didn't get aired, we talked a little bit about what we plan to do with the company and how we didn't just see it as, a, as a, a rental model, but as a way to consume content in the future. So I think they were... Impressed and excited about the publishing contracts that we had built at the time, but at that point it was McGraw-Hill and a few smaller publishers that we were able to build out a course, which is about 30 at the school, but from then on, we've actually, I think our title list is right clocking in right around 5,000 books on the platform right now, so it's been a huge growth since then, but the way that we kind of responded to Kevin was that it wasn't just about creating a model that worked for publishers. It was about really being able to communicate a shared vision, and I think that that's one of the things that we've really been able to not only take kind of as a learning experience from Shark Tank, but a learning experience from our whole process since junior of college, was that it really is about making sure that we're not just telling publishers that we can make money with them on this, but talking about the ability to plug in their additional products into our platform and how we can be working together towards a digital future for education.
0: What kind of deal did you guys end up striking with Mark Cuban?
1: It was 250000 for a 20% stake in our company.
0: Wow. Now, what are the realities of what truly happens, like, immediately after you know that you got the deal? Like, pretty much it's like a handshake, right? Like, on that show, it's like a handshake, yay, everything, everybody's happy. What do we as viewers not see that happens after that?
1: that's actually an interesting thing is that in addition to the, the companies that film but don't air there are, there are actually companies that strike the deal but then in the due diligence process after the show because at the point where you're actually pitching the sharks they don't have any additional context around your company besides what your pitch is so they they meet you they hear your pitch they ask you questions and that's all they have at the time of making the deal so there is a robust and you know the full due diligence process of any any top-tier investor that happens after the show so we actually, as soon as the show aired, we did get our we got paperwork that detailed everything that they needed from us to really prove out that everything that we had said on the show was was true. That all of our numbers were trending the way that, that Mark wanted to see. So he went through the the full due diligence process, and we actually not only have been close with his lawyers throughout the whole process, we're very closely talking through all the questions that they have, making sure that we're available whenever they do have questions. We've actually been very close with Mark throughout the process as well. So about once a week we share a update and an email with Mark Cuban and he actually has been not only you know, throughout the process of making the deal then advising us, but even after we did close the deal about, I think about a month ago, so not only after we filmed it, but after the show aired. So in that whole process, it did take about, I think, seven to eight months to have the entire deal closed and, you know, get everything finalized. But there is kind of that, that full paperwork and due diligence process that happens after the show airs that obviously would take some of the glamor out of that, that, exciting handshake deal of airing on the show, but yeah, it that's really all the like,
0: detailed, not pretty stuff that the general public doesn't really need to see. We, we want to see the sexy stuff.
1: well <laughs> yeah, but I actually, that, that stuff that happens after is so important because yeah. I think it really shows that the sharks when they're investing are really not just doing it for part of the show or for the publicity of it. They really are seeing this as a legitimate investment and a place where they're putting a substantial amount of their money into and they want to make sure that this is a deal that they not only feel good about financially, but that the co-founders that they're investing in are people that they really believe in and trust. So I think all that stuff that happens after is actually even more important than the stuff that airs in the show, even though it's not quite as glamorous. But we've been so, so excited to be working with Mark because he's not only been there every time we have a question, but he actually initiates contact with us all the time with new ideas, kind of new products that could plug into our existing strategy or even just small bits of advice or ideas that pop into his head. He's really always keeping back top of mind for him, which is very exciting for us, and I think more than we even could have expected. You know, going on the show, or even before we decided we were going to go on the show. So I don't think that we could have even realized how powerful that partnership was going to be, both with Mark himself and with going on Shark Tank, because it ended up having this amazing after effect with students that you know were able to hear about us through the show, the first time they'd ever heard about a model like this, and just immediately connected with what we were doing. And we actually got. Not only an influx of customers after the show, but a enormous influx of people wanting to volunteer with us. And out of that new traffic and that new group of people that were so excited about what we were doing, we've actually started a brand ambassador program, which is one of our core marketing strategies now. So we have kids all across the country that are packed back brand ambassadors that are actually kind of being the feet on the ground for us and evangelizing the vision at their college campuses and. Bringing their own entrepreneurial ideas and spirit into new ways that we can market Packback for different college campuses, because as I'm sure you know, every college is so different and they're their own small community that what reaches each one individually and the way that it's communicated is so subtly different. But having those students there really allows us to continue tapping into the student voice. What was what we really connected with when we were founding it? We wanted to be students creating a solution for students. But I think for us going forward, the most important thing is that we're always choosing students top of mind for us, both in you know the way we're developing our products, but also in the way that we're marketing our company. So our brand ambassadors are, you know, honestly, I feel like even more important than our core team members because they are they are our most invested and most passionate student fans. And without them, I don't know how we'd be reaching colleges like Syracuse that have some of our most dedicated brand ambassadors over there that have just drummed up so much excitement around Packback and so many customers that Without without having students on campus there, you're kind of relegated to your traditional means of marketing through PR and through articles, obviously through social media marketing. But I don't think you really get that kind of one-on-one human connection without having people on the ground in your different locations.
0: I love that. And I think it's very, very effective. I mean, you're really like integrated at, at the grassroots level with all of the different universities. What process do you have and works for you in order to manage those people? Not I mean, not only your brand ambassadors, but maybe some of the, the team members who have come along with you as you guys are growing out like what sort of management style are you using and it works for you in order to kind of manage all of those people
1: that's actually one thing that after Shark Tank it was a challenge for us but it was an exciting challenge that our team grew from three people full-time to eight people full-time as employees in addition to about six full-time interns that are in the office plus all the brand ambassadors that we added so our team grew just exponentially after the show and obviously any time your, your team grows, there's a change in dynamic, and that trying to maintain that close relationship has been something that's very, very important to us. So for our core team, and actually one of the full-time employees we brought on is someone who manages our brand ambassador program as her full-time job, which is incredible, and she's so organized in the way that she works with all the ambassadors, and she remembers all of their names and faces and their stories, which is just one of the things. I just I appreciate everything that she's doing so much, and we have her now kind of as our touch point, our kind of our gatekeeper for all of our brand ambassadors, but they end up going through Kim to talk to the rest of the team as well. So we keep the loop of communication open between all the team members and our brand ambassadors, but within the team itself, we actually have, because we do have the the eight people full time now, we have kind of, I think, an interesting management style of bringing in not just kind of the, what you'd imagine is like the key person on a specific project, but the the leads on each part of our business, so our marketing, our product development, our design, and our development are all together in each planning meeting. And we really try to develop uh, new products and new marketing strategies by working together as a team early on to make sure that we're kind of nipping in the bud any problems that would arise as soon as it hits over to development or hits over to design. So bringing in those very different backgrounds and very different mindsets allows us I think to create some really innovative solutions to marketing problems for example by pulling in development expertise and design expertise and product management expertise and then marketing and its influence on design and the way that we build out our interface so just kind of allowing that cross-functional influence from other team members to be a really important way that we move our meeting forward I think is one of the things that we've you know tried to keep going even as our team has grown but it's difficult to keep everyone in the meeting together, but I think what we've, you know, we've been very lucky to have a team that's very close, both socially and professionally. So we, we work really well together. And for, I know it's a challenge that we're going to continue facing as we keep growing to keep that kind of flat organization, but we're really excited about the dynamic that we have going on now where everyone works together in the same room in a, honestly a very tiny office in a co-working space right now. So we have about 14 people at a time, 13 14 people sitting in an 8-person office where we're all kind of sitting on top of each other. And we obviously have that physical closeness that can to our ability to work so collaboratively together.
0: And how have you guys actually used that investment from Mark Cuban? Like, I'm imagining a lot for staffing, but, you know, what where yeah. did you really direct that money's?
1: Staffing really is our, uh, was our biggest push after that investment because we had up until that point not had a single full-time developer on staff. And for an online business, that's actually kind of uh, obviously a problem to have no one on staff at that point. So we up until that point where we had the investment from margin, we were able to bring on our two new developers and our new development interns full-time onto our staff. We have been working with a really fantastic company here in Chicago called Dashfire that actually works with very, very early stage companies even as early as their concept stage like we were when they had first been introduced to us that actually they have a product team and a development team that actually works with you to get your MVP developed. So we for, for the point when we actually went on Shark Tank, we still had just our MVP developed, and we had worked with this company up until the point where we were able to bring on our full-time developers, and they had been tapering off as we started bringing on new people. But I think that's really not only an important way that we used funding from Mark, but the rest of our round was to fill out that team and to make sure that we had a really robust development team, really robust engineering team that was not only able to execute on, on the specific product idea that we were working on at the time, but now really focused on building everything and rebuilding everything in a very scalable way so we're able to continue adding products and continue adding user, users in a way that fits together and, and is able to grow as opposed to trying to kind of jigsaw piece new ideas into the business. So we're really excited about having that team on staff that we can really bounce ideas off them right away and make sure that we're continually thinking in a way that's going to be very long-term focused and not just kind of what can we do to stay alive right now, which I think is something that a lot of really early-stage companies face.
0: Mark Cuban is one of a handful of different investors that you guys have accumulated over the past couple of years. So what, what are the realities of what that truly means for your company? Meaning, how are you guys truly managing the expectations of these investors, both their expectations of you and your expectations of them? And how do you keep track of it all?
1: For our investors, obviously, because they, everyone that we've worked with, we've been extremely careful and have had this very long-term relationship before we ever took investment money from them. They have a very strong understanding before we even you know, strike that deal that Pathback is really going to be a long-term solution. It's not going to be something that happens overnight. It's a, It's a business that's reliant on long-term partnerships with large companies that do take a while to move a deal, kind of to the deal flow. So I think our investors do have an understanding that PacPEC is going to take a couple of years to really become successful, but when it does, it could really change the way that education is viewed and the way that educational content is consumed. So I think we really have been careful to make sure that every investor that we bring on has a, a true passion for the vision and really you know, kind of share the energy that, that we share for changing the landscape in in textbooks. So that's kind of the way that we viewed every partnership has been about actually truly just that, not just about taking in financing or just taking an investment, but really making a partnership with someone who has a vested interest in our success long-term and that we really respect their opinion and we respect all their advice because as I mentioned, being students that founded this company, we really did benefit so much from having those investors on board that did believe in the cause and believe in what we were doing to to give us that early kind of push, not only just in the financial sense, but in just you know, just a, a general. Business and support sense. So, making the additional connections that we needed to fill out our round, making the introductions that we needed with publishing companies, and kind of break down some of those walls that really are hard to make those initial connections without having someone who knows someone in that specific business. So, every uh, investor and every investment company that we've brought on has been such a strategic value add for us that we really can't even see it as just our financing. We see it as a long term relationship. So, it's certainly something that you have to kind of make a a conscious decision when you're starting out your company If, if you're willing to give up equity in your company and you're willing to give up some of that control for the good of, of trying to move your business forward. So it depends on the kind of company you are and how much financing you need, how much support you need to get started. If fundraising and going with true angel investors or true investment companies is the right idea for you, a lot of companies are able to bootstrap. And that's so incredible. We, I mean, I personally, and I know our, my co-founders really respect people that are able to do that. But just at the place that we were at, for us, it was such a critical move, not just to get the money that we needed to hire the next key role or do our next marketing campaign that we were planning, but to have that support system to really round out the education that we had, really round out the experience that we had.
0: Jessica, through this entire time, you have had tremendous growth. What has been one of the biggest challenges that you as a businesswoman have had during this journey?
1: For me, so I actually, and this is an an interesting thing that I did want to touch on actually is that... So a week ago, I have been part-time with Packback, which has been, what's interesting about that is so a part-time co-founder means that you're 100% invested in the company. You're giving 100% of any free time that you have, which for me was every night from five o'clock to about three o'clock in the morning after my other full-time job and wow. every all weekend. So I was actually, and the company that I was at just previously to coming out of Packback was a company called Listen Ventures, which is a company that's actually invested in Packback as well. They're a boutique brand consultancy and venture fund here in Chicago that works with very early-stage startups to use design and branding as a way to accelerate their businesses. So I was basically doing for their portfolio companies, which one of them actually did include Packback, what I do for Packback on a day-to-day basis, really trying to use branding and design as a way to filter decision-making in the business process and create an experience that it truly is a brand experience as opposed to just a website or, you know, just a a business concept. So basically the same kind of thing that I do with Packback in addition to um, what I, at Packback, I'm also the director of UX. So I work very closely with our developers, but I had been full-time at Listen, you know, for about a year. And then prior to that was at Light Bank, which is a, a larger VC here in Chicago as one of their first ever design fellows. So in both of those cases, I was really looking in an operational sense at a venture capital firm doing design, which I think has been something that's kind of top of the conversation in the VC world right now, is how can we use design as a way to accelerate our portfolio company's growth and really recognizing that design does have that power. And I think that I was incredibly lucky to have both of these opportunities because they really both were very unique opportunities in design in VC. So Light Bank itself, we worked as a as consultants basically for about five other portfolio companies over a three month period. As in house for Light Bank, working on a one off project with each of their companies. And then at Listen it was really about becoming a vested design partner at the at the you know, kind of inception stage of a company to work with them from that point forward and always considering design as a is a key business accelerator. So very similar but very unique models in and of themselves is how you can see design as a way to grow companies at that early stage. But up until, actually, so it's been two weeks now, so two weeks ago Monday was my first day to actually be full-time in the office with all of our incredible employees, which is such an amazing change of pace for me because I would take all of our meetings after work hours with individual employees and do all of the work that it took to maintain Packback's design, Packback's user experience, Packback's web, all from home and after hours, which is pretty incredible because they're just really... We didn't have any other design resources so it was really about making sure that if Packback had a need that it was met because there was no one else to do it so it was a definitely that was personally challenging for me to be able to not only continue to bring value to my full-time during the day employers but also continue driving our vision forward and making sure that I was always meeting all of the needs that Packback had and in addition to meeting those needs, trying to to push new needs to keep driving us forward at an accelerated rate. So it's very exciting for me to be full time at my company now and really be able to work in the office of all of our employees. Because it's such a different dynamic to be in there full time. But it's kind of one of those things that I feel like isn't always talked about. I think it's so encouraged to quit your job right away and commit fully to your startup. And I think there are much, I think there are a lot of different ways to commit fully. So I truly felt that working Every night and every weekend, I was so committed and so invested in what we were doing. But at the point that I would have loved to have come over full-time to Packback, but we hadn't fundraised enough to even bring me on full-time. So I was doing a lot of my work as just donated time to Packback to drive our vision forward before we even were able to bring on any additional employees. So I think that's one of those things that there are so many different ways to experience an entrepreneurial journey and to kind of to grow a company it doesn't always have to be that kind of prescribed method of what is considered the kind of the classic entrepreneur story now but there are so many different ways to do that and I think the most important part of it is not how you do it but if you truly truly believe in what you're doing and if you're willing to put in all of those crazy hours and work in all of your free time and if it's something that really just moves you to kind of give up all of that, that personal time but still see it as what you love doing and still see it as the most important thing that you do. So for me, it's been been challenging, but it's been very, very exciting to be there full time now.
0: I really wanna conclude this conversation by asking you, what is like the biggest lesson that you have learned over these years of being a businesswoman?
1: So I think for me, one of the biggest things is that absolutely no one out there, not even the most experienced people, not even the people that are running multi-billion dollar companies that are running international companies, no one knows everything. So I think that's when I realized that there, there's always more that we can learn and there's always more that we can continue to do to keep growing as individuals and as business owners. That was really liberating for me because it relieved some of that pressure of feeling like you need to be perfect or you need to know everything before you can get started. One of the most important things to remember is that for where you are in your business story and your growth, There's always someone who has even a day or two less experience than you that you can then in turn be a mentor for. So it's about both realizing that everyone has more that they can learn has more they can do to grow and just realizing that it's okay to jump in and learn some of that stuff as you're going and reach out to people who are willing to be mentors to you to help you kind of fill in your gaps in your knowledge and really moving forward as opposed to just waiting to see when you really feel 100% ready, because I think as soon as you feel 100% ready, you waited too long. But then in addition to, to recognizing that you don't have to know everything, it's about, you know, in turn recognizing that you can then help other people and make them realize that it is okay for them to get started, even if they don't feel like they know everything yet. So... I think that's one of the things that we love about working in Chicago itself is that there are so many people who are willing to reach out, willing to be a mentor to other entrepreneurs who are just starting off their journey. And we've really been active in trying to make sure that we're uh, reciprocating what we've been given throughout our, our early journey of people just willing to take a risk on us, willing to offer us that advice that we needed to get our company started. Making sure that we're doing the same thing for students that are just graduating, for people that we meet that are just starting out their company and aren't sure how to get started. Anything that you can can offer out of your own story to someone else is so important to make sure that they realize that it's the right time to get
0: started. Jessica, I really want to thank you so much for being on the show with me today. The show notes for this conversation are at bizwomenrock.com forward slash 80. Apart from the fact that I was so blown over by how forward thinking and innovative and really brilliantly strategic Jessica is for being so young, good lord knows I was not doing anything nearly that productive when I was in college. (laughs) Um, My biggest takeaway from this conversation was something that she had talked about about their brand ambassadors. I thought that that was such a unique Way to be able to market and to be able to make sure that your brand is getting carried out there appropriately. And as a matter of fact, off air, we actually spoke about the fact that the Biz Women Rock podcast and community just actually initiated our very first brand ambassadors because the messages and the wonderful um, education that is in these stories and the whole community of every single great businesswoman out there who's connecting to it is such a powerful brand and one that people really get behind. And I'm so honored by that. And I, it just lights me up. So the Biz Women Rock community has really established these brand ambassadors, which I'm so proud of. Anyway, I really love the idea of having brand ambassadors. It's a great tool for marketing and for getting the word out there. I hope you got something really great out of it. Stay tuned for the rest of our week of Shark Tank. So excited about that. Have a great one and I'll see you on the next episode. So just an interesting side note that it was pouring rain the entire time of that conversation. (laughs) Just random little things that you need to pay attention to in the audio programming. And I have no control over that. So anyway, hope you enjoyed it.